I really connected when Pastor Scott was praying about people who are going through difficult times and then to think, where is this good God? But we know God is good. As we said there, this is really the message, the core of the message I think God has laid on my heart for the church. Can we turn those lights off a little bit? Is it possible? Um, everything has been created by God, by a good and wise God who we have come to know in Jesus. Can we turn that one up, please? It's a little bit too blinding for me. Let us focus on this as a core message to us this morning, despite what we may be experiencing or going through. Let us pray. Lord, we sense your presence here this morning. We know, God, that you are a good God. Despite what we are going through, or some of us going through, whether it be financial difficulties, sickness, pain, misunderstanding, confusion. God, it is so difficult when we find ourselves in these positions to proclaim from our mouths and deep from within our hearts that you are a good God. But Lord, today, we will defy our feelings and our emotions and declare that you are a good God. When we just look at your creation, O God, it is enough for us to know that you are a good God. But today we pray for those of us especially who are going through difficult times, that in your mercy and your compassion and your love and your goodness, O oh God, that you may sustain us, reinforce our faith and trust in you, that you will take us through the valleys, through the tough times, and that we will once again, Lord, give you praise and glory. So this, I was just thinking, did we read the scriptures? <laughs> I can't remember. Oh, we didn't. Genesis 12, 1 to 12. Somehow I thought someone was going to read that scripture, but nobody did. Just to give us a, a bearing. Genesis 1, 1 to 12. I want us to look at this um, scripture. I'm not going to read it all the way through. Most of us are familiar with it. And in the interest of time, I'm just going to point out a few things. This, of course, is a creation story. It says here, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovers over the waters. And then it went on to explain the, the creation over about four or five, over six days. 
But all along, for example, in verse 3, it said that God saw that the light was good. Then down in verse 9, it said that, And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called the sea. And God saw that it was good. And he went on to talk about creating the vegetations and the plants. And he said, and God saw that it was good. If all these things in creation are good, then it means it's coming from a good God. This morning we'll be talking about creator. I like the term creator of heaven and earth rather than maker of heaven and earth. That is just my probably cultural bias. That's all. I don't think it makes much of a difference. But creator has connection with divinity. When you say creator, the Hebrew root comes from divinity. The ability to create something out of nothing. So I will use the term creator of heaven and earth, but you can also use maker of heaven and earth. Why was the Apostles' Creed written in the first place? Christian teachers struggled in the second century to define their beliefs and commitments in opposition to popular rival teachings during that time. Pastor Scott mentioned last week, <laughs> I smile because I was thinking about these naked people going to be baptized. I'm a gynecologist, right? So it doesn't bother me. <laughs> yeah, we had a little banter there at the bowling about it. But it was important that they understood what they, what they believe and what they were committing, committing themselves to. And in the midst of these rival teaching, it was very difficult for the Christians to get their message out. So some of the popular teachings at the time in the second century was, for example, the educated class at the time, those who consider themselves smart, they basically took it for granted that the physical world was inherently evil and irredeemable. They wanted to escape from the world of the flesh and experience spiritual enlightenment. How do you do that? How can you escape this world to experience spiritual enlightenment? You guys probably, I don't know, you might, some of you guys are probably young. In the 60s and so on, people used to go to, like, India, right, the Far East. And what they do for enlightenment? Smoke weed, <laughs> take drugs, LSD, right? And all sorts of crazy stuff to find God. We know that that doesn't work. I get very worried when young people come to me and say, I'm trying to find myself and I'm going to get some enlightenment. It concerns me. 
Because then you have to dig a little deeper to find out what they mean and what they're thinking of. So here are these educated people, and most times it's the educated people who like to talk these things, right? Who think they're educated. They were trying to escape this world to experience enlightenment. They thought the world, the material things, the flesh, was just evil and sinful. Then you have Marcion, a very charismatic teacher of the time. He claimed that the material world or universe was created by a wicked and incompetent God. Can you imagine? His followers renounce any form of natural bond. They renounce sex, they renounce marriage, they renounce childbearing. And they only tend to value spiritual bonds. Just think about that. I just thought God said, be fruitful and multiply. That's what crossed my mind. Then you have the Gnostics of the time. They claim that the physical world was created by an inferior deity. And salvation comes through escaping the material world by esoteric wisdom. If you look at all these ideas, philosophies, and so on at the time that were really bombarding the Christians, there's a common theme or thread that goes through it. It was a common teaching of dualism that divided the bad creator from the good redeemer. And the bad world of the flesh from the good human spirit. May we have the next slide, please? I don't know if I can try this again. Let's see if it works. So, in summary, these are some of the things that really bombarded the Christians. God created an inherently evil and irredeemable physical world. You're hearing this day in and day out. God is wicked and incompetent. God is, inf is an inferior deity and salvation comes through wisdom. So when you're in a culture like that, then you need to make a stance in terms of your belief. And it's within this sort of framework and context and culture that Christians decided, listen, we need to really put on paper or whatever it was they wrote and then our core belief. And out of this, they developed the Apostles' Creed. It has been modified since the second century a bit and expanded a bit to what we know it as now. So the Christian had to push back, as it were, against the culture. So they took what we considered, and a favorite word of Pastor Scott, a countercultural stance. They decided we are going to push back at this because we believe in a good, almighty God. He's not inferior. 
And all that I've just said came from the book, The Apostles' Creed by Ben Myers. And the first line of that Apostles' Creed, maybe go to slide, the next slide, please. The first line of the Apostles' Creed is, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. The Christian had to stand on what they believe. Everything has been created by a good and wise God who we have come to know in Jesus. Although many evil things happen in the world, Christians confess that we are still living in God's good creation. The world needs healing. It's not an evil world that needs to be destroyed. And then Pastor Scott, in his prayers, mentioned renewal. God will redeem the heavens on the earth. God is our salvation through Christ. No matter what you're going through, stand on the word of God. Stand on the promises of God. Trust God. Yes, it is difficult. Yes, it is tough. But brothers and sisters, stand on the word and the promises of God. God will never ever put you to shame. God will never ever let you down. Perhaps for the short term it may seem like that. Please, for all of us, myself including, let us learn to take an eternal perspective on life. Not a short-term perspective. God is doing a work amongst us here in this church. And the transforming power of his Holy Spirit is at work. Despite what you and I are going through. What did God say about his creation? And I read, sort of, from Genesis 1, 1 to 12. It was a good God who created the heavens and the earth. Have you ever stopped to think that God created heaven, the angels, and all those angelic creatures and everything? Then created the rest of the universe, as it were, or the world, or the earth? It's just so hard to comprehend. But yes, he did. Sometimes we tend to think that somehow God, heaven wasn't created by God, but he was created by God. And creation itself was good. But we all know what happened, don't we? Sin came in. But back in the early days in the garden of Eden, God's heart was to relate to mankind. 
talking with Adam and Eve, meeting with them, communing with them. Think about that. They didn't have to hide from God before they sinned. And we're going to touch a little bit about the glory of God. Because I could see God in all his splendor and glory walking into that garden. The garden he created. And Adam and Eve were able to just bask in the presence of this beautiful, wonderful, splendorous, if there's a word, splendorous, presence of God. That's what God wants for us. And you know what? It's, it's happening. That's why Christ came. The process has started. The redemptive process of God is on the move. And that's why you and I are here. Because we want to be a part of that process. For all of us sitting here this morning, God is at work in your hearts. God is transforming you. God is transforming me. Making me more and more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Why did God create heaven and earth? You ever thought of that? You have the Trinity, right? The triune God. They're happy. They love each other. Totally united as one. Basking in their glory. Why do you create heaven and earth? Create human beings. And then give us a free will. That's a messed up thing. (laughs) You ever thought about that? If I create such a wonderful world, have such a wonderful time, I'm going to control everything that I create. You're going to dance like a puppet. (laughs) When I say jump, you jump. When I say run, you run. When I say sit, you sit. Because I am God. Think about it. But God didn't do that. God said, I'm going to create these people and give them free will. Do whatever. And Eve just go, eh, eat the apple. And then blame Satan and then blame God. Then Adam turned around and said, well, it's the woman you gave me. No, Pastor, I may be wrong theologically. Especially for a sort of young seminary student. (laughs) But I didn't get the sense that they repented. I stopped and I said, suppose Adam and Eve were like Moses or David. You know, they just stop and say, God, I'm so sorry. Forgive me. Cleanse me of all my sins. What would have happened? Anyway, think about that. (laughs) Because that's not the case. But God has given us a free will. And we use that free will to mess things up. And then we blame God. That's what we're doing, you know. What a messed up world. What's happened to these people? And God is trying through Christ. For thousands of years trying to pull us back. It's harder. It's difficult. We, we know that. We're, we're not being naive. But there's a process in place. And I pray God that sin will not blind us. I pray God may open our eyes and our hearts. So that we can see what he's doing. I pray God that we will surrender completely. That's hard. That's what we struggle with every day. And we have to keep praying and pressing. 
Colossians 1.16 For in him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things have been created through him and for him, which is Jesus. Why was the world earth created? Why was heaven and earth created? Through him and for him. That's why God created the heaven and the earth. It was created through Christ and for Christ. Now if God knew we were going to have such a messed up world, why did he do that? You know, sometimes we think, I don't think I have much time, Pastor Scott. I better <laughs> Sometimes we think that God got caught off guard and all of a sudden rushed to put this redemptive plan in place. But that's not true. The mission of God from the outset was to share his glory, his unity, beauty that the Trinity had with his creation. That was the plan. And when sin entered, that did not stop the plan. And it is not the major reason why God is missional. It is only a part of it. He's redeeming as he go along. God is not like, oh my gosh, Eve messed up, Adam messed up. Let me put something in place. No. He created it, it started out because he wanted us to be a part of it. John 17, 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. The glory of God. Jesus is craving to get back to that time of communion and unity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit together. Three in one. What he's saying, I want to bring all my disciples, all the people you have given me, with me so that they can see and enjoy and experience your glory. I have here, at the time Jesus actually said, prayed this, he was about to die, he was about to go to the cross. So I thought, you know, if I'm going to die, I'm going to look at things that I would put on my bucket list. And I really believe that this was sort of something here. And I think when you dig deeper into scripture, it's like we say, this is my last will and testament. Right? And Jesus was saying, this is the last thing before I go to the cross. This is really what I want. I want those you have given me to be with me. Where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Isn't that wonderful? That's what the mission of God is all about through Christ. We got a glimpse of that glory. If you remember when Christ was on the, the mountain, he took Peter, James, and John up to the mountain. And he said, up to a high mountain. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as the light. Moses and Elijah appeared and spoke with Jesus. This was evidence that Jesus was in the presence of his father. 
from a bright cloud, which is a sign of God's presence, and that's from the Old Testament too, God spoke, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. What is this glory? Next slide, please. I don't think this is working. Can we have the next slide? Oops, sorry. Yeah, let's get the next slide. Okay. So, what is the glory of God? Dallas Willard, because we struggle with that, right? With, with, what is really the glory of God? Dallas Willard put it as, the magnificent outpouring of the radiant splendor of God's power, strength, beauty, and goodness. As you dig deeper into the scriptures, however, you, you, found, you will find that the glory of God is associated with God's presence. And it can be seen and experienced. In Exodus 33, 15-23, Moses experienced God's glory as radiant splendor and goodness. So Moses was saying, I'm not going up, Lord, if you're not with me. I need your presence with me. And God, after you know, bantering with... You can imagine, he was scared like nothing when God threw him a little bit by the burning bush. No, he has grown in God. And he was now saying to God, I, I need your presence. I'm not going up without your presence. So God said, okay, I'll show you. I, I, I'll be with you. I'll send my presence with you. And the most strange question came out of Moses' mouth, as far as I was concerned. Show me your glory. Who would have thought of that? And why did he say that? Because he wanted some form of confirmation of God's presence. He said, I need something tangible. Show me your glory. And what God said, okay. I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. Oh, that's not what you asked for. What is this saying to us? God equates his goodness with his glory. And when you see God's glory, you're actually seeing his goodness. And we know that it shines because Moses' face lit up. The splendor of his face. He had to cover his face after speaking with God and to deal with the people. We saw that before with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. So it is visible. But it was, when you think about it, and we're talking about the Apostles' Creed and how they thought that God was an inferior God, that everything was evil and God was incompetent. And here God, when he said, show me your glory, God was saying, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. And God went on to proclaim his name and his character of mercy and compassion. All tied up in his glory. Moses' face became radiant from being in the presence of God. God's glory is confirmation of his presence and goodness. In the wilderness... It went as a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day, resting over the tabernacle, a sign of God's presence. That's what we're talking about. And the disciples got a glimpse of it on the Mount Transfiguration. So when we look at everything together, we know that God is a good God. And he wants us to be with him so that we can share in his glory, in his goodness, in his mercy, in his compassion. That's what he said when he said, show me your glory. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the whole earth 
is full of your holiness. No, it's full of your glory. So glory also signifies the holiness of God. It's holiness, it's goodness, holiness, purity. You're talking about a wicked and incompetent God. These are counter to all that was being taught in the time that the creed was developed. And it was all in the scriptures. It's like God knew that these are the things that people would push against him with their free will. And he's given us in his word exactly how to push back against these. Thank God, finally, the time is going to come when God's glory at Christ's second coming will be quite evident in the new heaven and the new earth. John saw the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of the very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb, Jesus, is a lamp. The glory and honor of nations will be brought into it. That's what we're talking about. That's what this process is all about. The redemptive process of Christ dying on the cross, reconciling us with God so that they can all, we can all be united. And he said it. You go back and read John 17. He's praying that as Christians we will be one. One in him and then God in Christ in us. That's what we're doing for. And full manifestation of this in Revelation. So in summary, in terms of the glory of God, Jesus wants us to be with him forever and to see and experience his glory. God the Father wants to live with us in a new heaven and earth full of his glory. Finally, Satan and his angels and everything that is evil will be destroyed. God will reverse the curse he pronounced. Next slide, please. So I'll conclude by saying everything has been created by a good and wise God who we have come to know in Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Thomas. I heard something this week that was kind of sobering. It was a question. I can't remember where I heard it. I hear so many things throughout the week. But um, this particular question stood out to me, more of a comment. You know, I said, in our world, people are very, very prone to ask the question, why? And usually that question is always in relation to bad things that happen to us. Anybody relate? struggles in life and, and that why question. And this particular person, again, I can't remember who it was, so why don't we ever ask the question why in relation to the good things that happen to us? That tells you a little bit about your heart. Why do we assume that good things should happen to us and bad things shouldn't? 
Sorry to say it, but that's pride. That's Adam and Eve. That's eating the fruit. That's, that's a condition of the heart that does not recognize a good God, a good creator, and our dependence upon him for everything. Not just bad things, but all the good things too. Why should we ever expect something good to happen to us? Well, because God is good. Because God is good, but not because of anything related to me. And that's the caution, right? He allows rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. He is a merciful and loving creator God. So I just thank you for these words today, the reminder of God as our creator. I want to give you a few minutes while I bring the elements over here. We're going to take a few minutes to receive communion today, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And uh, as we do, I want to give you some time to prepare. So maybe the Lord has stirred your heart and you want to write something down. Maybe you just want to spend a few minutes in silence. We're going to give you a couple of minutes to do that. I'll prepare the elements and then we'll receive communion together to close out our time today. Let's just take some time.